This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Father, we, uh, we again just want to prepare our hearts for your word. God, we, <clears throat> we know um, the elements in, involved as we uh, try to speak your word. We need your help. We need your anointing. We need anointing upon the hearers as well. And I pray that today we would uh, just be ready to say yes to what your Spirit tells us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but churches, at least as a whole, um, gain their reputation by what they're against. You know, for example, our church, and I think that most other churches in this area would have had the same position, uh, but for decades, churches have typically stood against dancing. You know, dancing in bars, dancing in dance halls, as, as well as even dancing in the church during uh, praise and worship time. And, and so today, if you would have moved out into the center aisle or here by the stage and would have started swaying and shaking and uh, even claiming to be dancing in the Spirit, I don't know how our current church elders would have reacted. I'm kind of curious there, but, but the elders of years past would have probably taken some kind of action maybe fired me for letting the church get to that point. Maybe they would have taken matters into their own hands. Uh, I, I, I do think, I have to say this, I think that we have a double standard on this because when I travel to Africa and worship with my wonderful brothers and sisters there that have a lot more rhythm than I do, I found that most of us are okay with dancing in church. You know, they're dancing in church. We say, well, that's their culture. And uh, as I've told you before, when I've traveled to those countries that show a little bit more life than we do here, I, I've tried some dance moves in the, in the church to satisfy the brothers that were kind of egging me on. And uh, I, I will just say that when I did that, I believe the Spirit of the Lord was grieved. <laughs> Not because of the dancing, but because of how ugly my dancing was. And, and so <clears throat> maybe I'm just against dancing in the church because I don't have it in me. Um, other churches are against other things. You know, the Church of Christ, and, and this is not a slam against them. And, and uh, some of you, you, you tell me you listen to the radio broadcast every, every week, and I, I respect you. There are some amazing brothers and sisters there, but <clears throat> the Church of Christ has typically stood against instrumental music in the church. And if you ever go to their church, their singing is beautiful. I mean, it's, it's a cappella. It's four-part harmony, and it's just amazing. And, and here doesn't matter if you can sing or not, because you're not going to hear yourself above the roar. There, there would be another group of churches in the area, and I, I won't mention their names, but they're also wonderful brothers and sisters. And by the way, we don't, we don't shoot down other churches here. That's not our goal. God hasn't called us to do that. But there are some wonderful brothers and sisters there. And in fact, I've thought about becoming one of them, because here, you get nervous if my messages go over 30 minutes. But their preachers, they're just getting the phlegm out of their throats at the 30-minute mark. They're about ready to uh, shift into high gear. But, but, but anyway, these churches are, are typically against pastors using a manuscript for their sermon because they believe that the, if the pastor is close enough to God, then God will just kind of fill their mouth and give them the words at the right time. And, and, and I'll tell you what, that appeals to me because 
the many hours a week I spend preparing my, my sermon to think that I could save all of that prep time. It, it's appealing, but for, I, I've tried it when I tried that approach. I, I just do a lot of stammering, and, and I find myself saying, uh, uh, just hasn't worked out for me. You know, the Christian church, and they're good people as well. I, I'm not shooting them down. I, I, I love them. But one of the things that they would be against or at least shy away from would be planned baptisms. You know, most of the time they keep water in the baptist, baptistry and they keep it warm. And, and so when you're ready to commit your life to the Lord, you just, you're just baptized right there. And, and uh, you know, you don't wait. You don't wait for a planned baptism like we do here at the Church of God Holiness. And in some ways that makes a lot of sense to me. But anyway, as you look at all, at, at all of the different churches, it, it seems that we have become defined by what we are against. And this follows through in, in a lot of other areas as well. If, if a big corporation, a big company, sponsors a particular group of people that, that we don't agree with, then the thought is, let's boycott their products. You know, we so badly want to defend truth. We, we so badly want to stand for what is right. And, and there is a time for that. But what has happened is that we as churches many times have received our identity by what we are against. And so as I've thought about this, it, it, it occurred to me, to, me, to me that sometimes our greatest goal as churches and pastors has become to just make a point. You know, we need to make a point and boycott this, and we need to make a point and take a stand against this, and we need to make a point and, and kind of draw a line in the sand. You know, the Bible clearly says this, and so we must speak out against it and make a point. And again, there's a time for that to happen. But for those looking on, it seems that all the church is about is just making a point and positioning themselves against something. You know, we're against dancing, we're against smoking, we're against drinking, we're against divorce, we're against homosexuality, and, and, and we should be. But, but as I read the Gospels, and, and, and this year, in, in 2021, I, I decided to begin the new year by studying and working through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and I just finished that study this past week. But over the past three weeks, as I've, as I've tried to read the Gospels with fresh eyes and you know, sometimes we, we read the Bible and it's like we're glazed over. Maybe it's all of the glazed donuts that we have, but there's that glaze on our eyes. And, 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 but, but as I began to try to read the Gospels with, with fresh eyes, I, I questioned the approach of the church in America that has led to this reputation of always being against something. Because I'm not sure that comes from Jesus. In fact, as I studied the Gospels, it appeared to me that the main thing that Jesus consistently positioned himself against was not the wicked government, and believe you me, he could have. He didn't consistently position himself against the, the, the politics of the day, and he could have. He did not consistently position himself against the social injustices of the day or the erosion of values, and he could have. Of course, he spoke out against all of those things, but rather it appears that the main thing that caused a slow burn, you know what I'm talking about? You know, a slow burn, a slow burn where, 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 where kind of like the steam was building, it was the holier than thou 
hypocritical attitude of church people. The Pharisees. That's what he consistently took a stand against publicly. And that came to a head one day. Because one day Jesus walked up to a tax collector named Matthew. And, and if you were raised in church, as many of you were, you know that a tax collector was the equivalent of the very worst sinner you could think of. But Jesus walked up to Matthew, and, and in chapter 9, verse 9, he said, Matthew, I want you to take a little break. Shut down your tax collecting stand. And here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to um, invite some of your friends over to your very nice and luxurious house, and I want to hang out with you and your friends. Which, incidentally, Matthew's friends were probably scoundrels like Matthew. You know, birds of a feather flock together. Well, some of the religious people didn't like that, and they began thinking and, and even saying, Master, you're obviously showing how naive you are. You must not know who Matthew is. You must not know how bad Matthew is. And you must not know how much we do not like Matthew, the tax collector. They might have even said not to mention that he belongs to the other political party. And in this last election, Master, he didn't vote like we think all church people should have voted. And so, Jesus, we need to take a stand against people like this. We, we're kind of like the conscience of society, and so we don't need to associate with him. And we need to take a public stand and make an example out of him. Let's make a point that we as Christians won't associate with low life of his type. But as I studied this account, do, do you know what stands out to me? Are, are you ready for this? Are you sure you're ready for this? Are you awake? Jesus wasn't concerned about trying to make a statement against wicked people like Matthew. He wasn't interested in making a point. He was more interested in making a difference in his life. He didn't care that this man had a very horrible reputation. Jesus didn't care that he might be criticized for hanging with sinners. And, and nowhere, this gets a little close, but nowhere do you read where Jesus said, Matthew, I'm going to be loving here, but, but I need to let you know that the church is against what you're doing. Matthew, you need to turn or burn. Jesus wasn't out to make a point that his behavior was unacceptable. Jesus was out to make a difference in his life. And I'm afraid that as churches and as Christians in standing up for truth, which we should, yet many times we've slipped into the mentality and we begin thinking that standing up for these righteous standards and, and standing up for holiness and, and making a point is our calling from God, but it is not. God did not just call us to make a point. He called us to make a difference. And I think there are three reasons at least that we opt for just making a point. One is that making a point generally makes us feel good. Two is that making a point is way easier than making a difference. I mean, parents, you understand this. You've taken your misbehaving kids and sat them down and said, okay, look me in the eye. Come on, look me in the eye. Don't look me in the eyes. And you proceed to give them a long lecture, and then you say, go to your room, think about what I said, and they sulk off to their room, and after they leave, you're thinking they've gone into their room, and they're admiring their great wisdom of mom and dad. 
You know, you feel good because you didn't back down and you made your point. But, but then you can't understand why your kids don't change. And here's why. Because telling them they're wrong is different than guiding them to do what is right. Just yelling at them and, and pointing out they're wrong generally doesn't make a difference. They need more than criticism. They need guidance. And, and sometimes it's gentle. Sometimes it's firm. But they need someone to not just tell them what is wrong. They need someone to lead them into what is right. The third reason we opt to just make a point is that I've discovered that it's fun to make a point. You know, I get to wear one of these things here every Sunday morning and, and every Sunday after, after church. Kids come up to me and say, what's this? What's this wire on your face? Um, but I get to wear one of these, and, and since most of us were raised with like-minded values, you know, here in this part of the country, conservative, evangelical, Bible belt, most of the time when I take a stand against some of the messed up cultural and marriage values, and when I speak out against some of the politically correct nonsense that we have in our society, most of you, because again, we were raised with like-minded values in this conservative part of the country, most of you will agree with me and say, preach it, bro, and you leave saying, pastor took a stand today, he made a point, good for him, we need more of that, and we probably do. It's fun. It's easy to make a point. But the question that I've wrestled with uh, this past week after studying the Gospels is, does just making a point make a difference? And early this past week as I prayed and as I tried to seek God's face, I, I was just kind of troubled. And, and I felt Him kind of nudging me that we as a church need to do more than just make a point. We need to do more than just come out against the evils of society. We need to do more than just call out sin. We need to do more than just take a stand. I believe God has not just called us to make a point. Rather, I believe he's called us to make a difference. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, go and not just make a point, but he said, go and make a difference by making disciples. And as we look at this new year ahead of us, and as we look at issues that are facing us, issues that violate biblical teaching, issues that violate the sanctity of marriage, and, and issues that violate the sanctity of life, issues that are so far from what Jesus would teach, even though it's way more fun and much easier, and I would get a lot more amens and a lot more likes on social media by just taking a stand and calling out sin and making a point, yet... I don't want to just be a point-making church. I want to be a difference-making church. Because just making a point rarely changes lives for eternity. And honestly, this lesson has brought me out of my comfort zone. Because I confess to you, it seems that a good part of my ministry has been about making a point. You know, I've had no trouble calling out sin. And, but with God's help, and, and no, I don't plan on watering down my stance on anything. Yet I believe God is calling us to do more than just make hit and run statements that might get an amen and an attaboy. I believe God has called us to get into the messy world of people. And help make a difference in their lives. And it's messy. You know, we can make a point in about two seconds. 
it takes a lifetime to make a difference. And it's messy. Sometimes it's ugly. Sometimes it's discouraging. But I believe God has called us to make a difference. Now, unfortunately, the Bible does not give us a 12-step process to do this. Fortunately, there are different examples that help us get a glimpse of this. One of the most powerful examples comes from the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul has made the journey to Athens. And he's waiting on a couple of his ministry buddies, Silas and Timothy, to join him. And and so he takes some time, just to kill some time, he walks around the city of Athens. And as he does so, he's confronted with the fact that this is a very religious city, but not in a good way. Because as he walked around, he saw altar after altar. He saw idol after idol. He saw temple after temple to the pagan gods. In fact, they say there in Athens at this time, there were possibly up to listen to this, 30,000 different idols and altars to the many different pagan gods they served. Well, Paul, this is so against what he's, how he's been raised. He's been raised as a strict Jewish boy, studying the Hebrew Scriptures from childhood, and, and embedded in his spiritual DNA was one of the predominant laws, the prominent laws of Judaism, of thou shalt not have any graven image before you. And here they had 30,000 of them. In fact, this law, we, we call it the second commandment, was so revered that this was interesting. The scribes, you know, who, who meticulously copied Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, oftentimes they wouldn't even write the word God, G-O-D. They would just put the letter G followed by a space and then the letter D because they were afraid that by writing this over and over, you know, the entire word of God it would become commonplace and, and maybe even be some form of idolatry. So they would just put G space D. And so Paul had been raised in this very strict and conservative environment. And, and so as Paul took a stroll through Athens, this had to be very disturbing to him. This was a blatant disregard of one of God's core values. Well, when Paul got the opportunity to address the Athenian people, what do you think would have been the logical sermon to preach to these idol-worshiping pagans? Duh. It seems logical that Paul would have taken on the challenge of, of making a point and preaching a fiery sermon against the sin of idolatry. But Paul didn't. Have you ever thought about this? Why, why didn't he? Because he knew that the people were already on edge. He was this complete stranger, this foreigner. And if he would have started out by zinging them for their idolatry, you know what they would have done? They would have dismissed him as a, as a right-winged, radical wacko that was out of touch with their society. So what did Paul do? It was brilliant. It was spirit-led. During his walk through the city, he had happened to see an altar that caught his attention, and the inscription on that altar was to the, remember, unknown God. The Athenians didn't want to offend any of the gods, so, so just in case they had left out a god, they said, you know what, let's build an altar, an empty altar, and that way if the new god shows up, we can say, we just didn't know your name, but we've got an altar for you. Inspired by God, Paul began his message. Verse 22, Acts chapter 17. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, 
you know, these philosophers, they would gather there. I see that in every way you're very religious. And he might have added, I am too. I was trained in religion. Verse 23, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. And we don't have the rest, we don't have time to to read the rest of this account. But let me just summarize his message because this is so relevant for today. He took the concept of the unknown God and said, let me tell you about him. The God that you don't know, I do. I met him on the road to Damascus. He created the heavens and the earth. And, and then he got in a little bit of teaching against their temples and said, you know, this unknown God well, is such a big God that he really can't reside in the temples that you've built by human hands. And little by little, Paul began to weave in the message of the one true God, how Jesus died and resurrected from the dead. You know, Paul knew that just taking a stand and, and making a point by coming out against idolatry wouldn't change lives. But he also knew that Jesus Christ and his resurrection does change lives. That's what changes lives, Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that today. You know, just being against something, just taking a stand doesn't bring anyone to repentance. Jesus Christ is the one who changes lives. And sure enough, Paul finished his message. Several people, the Bible says, men and women believed the message and became followers of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? He wasn't out to make a point. He was out to make a difference. Another scripture that gives us additional insight is found in the book of Matthew and and you know this passage. We sing songs from this verse, these verses. You've probably memorized some of this. But Jesus, talking to his followers, said this, Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. In other words, this is a dark, dark world, but I've put a light in that dark world. And, oh, by the way, it's you. You're the light of the world. He goes on and says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And, you know, that doesn't make as much sense to us in this world, but maybe the best way to understand this is is for those of you that have flown at night, um, you know, in an airplane, you look ahead, sometimes see a glow on the horizon, and as that uh, plane gets closer, you wonder what it is, but then you see there, there's a city and the lights, and they've just kind of lit up that whole area, the whole horizon there. City on a hill cannot be hidden. Verse 15, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. So maybe they're saying, okay, Jesus, what's your point here? What, 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 what's your point Verse 16, in the same way, by the way, this is written to conservative Christians in Missouri. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your, what are the next two words? Good deeds, good works. Notice it doesn't say, well, so that they'll see your Christian billboards or your cute little Christian posts on Facebook. It doesn't say so that they will see your strong stands you take against sin. Those are all fine. But those things as a whole will not make a difference. They will just make a point. 
If you want to make a difference, as, as Jesus wants us to, then live your life in such a way to where people will see your good deeds, and after they see your good deeds, what will happen? They will begin to connect the dots, and it says, and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying you need to conduct your morality. You need to conduct your marriage. The way you raise your kids, the way you spend your money, the way you give your money, the way you participate in community events, the way you... Oh, conduct yourself on Facebook in such a way that people in darkness will look at you and and they will say, that's what I'm talking about. There's a person of their word. There's a person that's kind. No, they don't water down the Bible, but but they're more than just about making a point and, and being known for what they're against. Jesus said, I want you to live your life in such a way that you make a point by making a difference. You make a difference, which makes the point. You're like a light in a dark world, and the world is attracted to you. Well, no doubt there were people listening to Jesus that thought, oh, wait a minute, Jesus. What about taking a stand and calling out sin? What about drawing a line in the sand? What about holiness? What I love about Jesus, he could always read their minds. He was a step ahead. And so, look what he says then in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. You know, for those people who are thinking, Jesus, so are you saying it's all about love? You know, we don't need to worry about standards and righteousness and holiness. Jesus said, oh, no, no, no. He said, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You know, this isn't an either or. This is a both and, if I could just say it that way. This is not watering the gospel where anything goes. You know, just love each other and it's all good. No, Jesus says the principles of holiness and righteousness and standards are not done away with. But if you become that light in a dark world and do more than just let them know what you're against and you begin to let people see your good deeds, there will be something attractive about your life. And that will be the most effective way for them to worship and glorify your Father in heaven. I'm telling you, I'm out of my comfort zone today. Because this is, this is typically something that we have not practiced. You know, in, in churches, we, again, we do these hit and run statements. We call out sin and people say, Amen. Pastor took a stand. But what difference have we made? You know, Paul said in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, he said, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. In other words, be wise towards those who are not followers of Jesus. Make the most of every opportunity. So every time you have an opportunity to have a conversation with someone around the issue of faith, be wise in the way that you manage that conversation. And then Paul goes on and says this in verse 6, let your conversation be always full. Do you know what the word full means? That little word full, the Greek word, do you know what it means? It means full. That's what it means. Let your conversation be always full of what? Grace. Um, but, but Paul, when, when we're taking a stand, don't you think it, it justifies that we can kind of be mean and rough? And after all, we need to take America back. And 
And so we're, in essence, drawing a line in the sand. So doesn't that justify having a little bit of an attitude? Paul says, let your conversation always. And do you know what the Greek word always means? Always. You're learning here. Let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. There's a part of history that, and I know you probably get tired of the history that I bring into our lessons, but part of history that many people don't know, but it's so applicable for today. After Jesus died, little by little, Jesus' disciples were martyred, um, and then the Apostle Paul was martyred. He was probably beheaded by Nero. For the next 300 years of Christianity, Christians began letting their light shine. And, uh, you know, during the next 300 years or so after Jesus died, some uh, so, some plagues, or we would talk, call them today, pandemics swept through the area. They're in the Medita- Mediterranean Rim, and some say there were two. Others said there were three plagues. Some say up to four different pandemics swept through the Roman Empire. The Antonin Plague of 165 to 180, you know, we've been here, COVID, for a year. Uh, this was 15 years, but the Antonine Plague, or also known as the Plague of Galen, was especially deadly, and some believe that it it could have been uh, smallpox or measles, but some sources estimate that up to, listen to this, this blows my mind, five million people could have died during this pandemic. But but the point I want to make is that during these pandemics, it's documented that those who were not following Jesus, they began to panic. And they began bailing out of the populated areas, the cities where devastation was the greatest. And, and here's what's super interesting to me is that it's reported that the rich people left the cities first because many of them had, uh, you know, other homes away from cities and, and, and you know, where, where there wasn't that much population. Um, and then it, it said, secondly, you know, the rich people bailed first. Secondly, the pagan priests left the, the city then. And then the average person that had no place to escape to basically was left to die in the city. But it's documented that while many people were were fleeing the cities to get away from the death and, and devastation, Christians took it upon themselves to stay in the cities and care for those who had become ill. They took in children whose parents had died and were left to fend for themselves on the streets. Because while others panicked in the face of death, Christians didn't fear death. And it's documented how just the simple caring by Christians for even those who were pagan allowed many of them to recover and live. Now, Marcus Aurelius, and, and if you saw the movie Gladiator, he was the emperor in the movie Gladiator. He was an actual historical figure. And, and, and I think that the movie maybe says that he died at the hands of his son Commodus by, by asphyxiation, maybe choked him to death. I don't, remember, I don't remember exactly what it says there, but more than likely history says that Marcus Aurelius died of the plague. Smallpox, measles, or whatever that pandemic was. But, but he writes in a letter on some days over 5,000 bodies were taken out of Rome during the pandemic. 
But during this pandemic, Christians rose to the occasion, and they were the light of the world and, and made such an impact that, as we said last week, you know, when, when Constantine came around in the early 300s, uh, remember we said that he embraced Christianity, and, and he transitioned Christianity into the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. And, and so what, what had been happening for, you know, a, a century and a half or so is that the Christians had been doing so many good deeds, and, and whereas it began with the Roman Empire against Christians, but then they began to see how Christians were loving and caring and compassionate. And, and so by the time Constantine came around, he said, those Christians are amazing. I want to become one. Now, what you may not, uh, may or may not know is that a few emperors later, after Marcus Aurelius, an emperor rose to power called Emperor Julian, who was the nephew of Constantine. Many people, interestingly, would end up calling him Julian the Apostate. And you can read this in history. Um, But he was called Julian the Apostate because one day he decided, hey, enough of Christianity. Um, We need to take this country back to our founding fathers. Sound familiar? We need to take this country back to our founding religious roots, but for the Roman Empire, it was a polytheistic paganism. You know, paganism with a bunch of gods. Well, as Emperor Julian tried to reinstitute paganism in Rome, he ran into some trouble. Because by now, Christianity had incredible momentum, and it was known for its generosity and and compassion and kindness. So when Julian the Apostate, and here's what he did, he thought, you know, to kind of jumpstart, to take this back to our founding fathers, we're going to build some new temples and and, uh, install some new priests. It didn't gain much traction. And we actually have a fragment of a letter that Emperor, Emperor Julian or Julian the Apostate wrote, wrote complaining about this. And I want to read this to you. So here we are about 355 to 365 AD. Emperor Julian is complaining about the fact that he can't get this paganism thing going because paganism thing going because of all these crazy Christians. Listen carefully to what he wrote. We have preserved in history. Recent Christian growth is caused by their moral character. I, I crack up at this, even if pretended, and by their benevolence towards strangers. So he was saying, you, we got a problem, Houston. The, the, the Christians are so moral, and it's hard for us to com- compete with that. Now, now, he said, I think they're just pretending. I mean, nobody can really be that moral. Nobody loves their wife that much. Nobody loves children that much. No, nobody is really that good to strangers, but it's still hard to compete against it, even if they're just pretending He goes on and says, I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the priests. Now, this is a really interesting statement because he's talking about his own pagan priest not doing a very good job taking care of the poor. So he says that when, uh, you know, when when they're overlooked by our own priests, and then he goes on and says the impious Galileans, that's how he referred to Christians, the impious, and he called them this because they would not show respect to the pagan gods, but the impious Galileans observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence, but it gets worse. It says the impious Galileans support not only their poor, you know, part of the Christians, but ours as well. Julian was saying, how can we compete with that? The Christians keep taking care of the poor, even those that aren't part of their own Christian group. 
Isn't that powerful? And he goes on and says, everyone can see that our people lack aid from us, but they're getting aid from these impious Galileans. Do you know why the West was won? Do you know why Rome finally switched over to Christianity? It wasn't because of preaching. And that's tough for me to accept. Because that's what I do. We preachers like to think that it's our wonderful sermons that make a difference. The West wasn't won because of that. The West was not won because of a bunch of people rising up saying, we need to take this country back. We need to take a stand. It wasn't because Christians got together and made a point. It was because they said, let's do what Jesus told us to do. Let's make a difference and be a light. Let's be moral. Let's have better marriages. Let's be more generous. No child left behind, meaning let's take in orphans and diseased kids. <clears throat> let's be like a light <clears throat> Excuse me, in a dark world. And what will happen when we are that way? People will see our Father in heaven and praise Him. And can I say something, and hopefully you not get mad? Thank you. If you love this country, and if there's something in you that wants to take it back, that's great. But you won't take it back by making a point. You won't take it, take it back by simply standing up against sin. You'll take it back by deciding to make a difference. So in closing, let me just say a, a couple of things. First of all, as a church, we will probably never be Republican enough for some of you Republicans. And we'll probably never be Democrat enough for some of you Democrats. But that is not our goal. Our goal is not to align ourselves with a political platform nor party. Our goal is to align ourselves with the mission of God. What's the mission of God? To make disciples. We must be about our Father's business. And as we try to fulfill this mission, I want us to take a public stand when necessary. You know, if God's Word gives us clear direction, then we don't need to shy away from the issues of the sanctity of marriage, sanctity of life, or, or, or issues regarding standards of holiness. And when political and cultural issues interface with biblical teaching, we're going to talk about it. We're not here to dodge the difficult topics. But here's the difference. Here's the big difference. We will not just take a public stand to make a point and let the chips fall where they may. When we take a public stand, it will be as a light in a dark world to make a difference in someone's eternity. And let me be clear, the mission of the church, and some of you may not like me for this statement, but the mission of the church is not to return America back to its foundation. The mission of the church is to help the world come to know Jesus. Jesus said, go make disciples. That's, that's the mission of the church. So let's do that. Let's be that light. Let's outgive every other organization around. Let's outserve every other service organization. 
let's serve people we like and serve people we don't like. Let's serve people that voted like we did and let's serve people that voted for the other party. Hey, you may really hate me for this. Let's even serve those people we're not sure should be in our country. Let's serve people from the blue states, serve people from the red states. Let's serve people who take advantage of the system. Let's serve people who are hardcore drug users. God has called us to be a light and to show love to the lost, to the last, and the least. And as we make a difference, listen, as we make a difference, we'll also make a point that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And ladies and gentlemen, that will be the first step in seeing America become a city on a hill that the world can look to as a beacon of hope. And after all of that, I hope that all of God's people can say, Lord, I ask that you would appropriate this to our hearts. Don't let us be soft on sin. Don't let us go quiet or silent. But on the other hand, Father, would you keep us from doing these hit-and-run statements of calling out a particular group of people and then not really investing in their lives to make a difference? Father, I pray that you would help us to love sinners like your son did. Jesus said um, to Matthew, I want to go hang out with you and your wicked buddies. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, another scoundrel, I want to go to your house and hang out with you. Lord, that's, uh, that's how you began making a difference. It wasn't just a hit and run statement of making a point, but Father, you invested in your life into a messy world of messy people. And God, as we go from here, I pray that you would help us to do that. Lord, don't let us just make a point, but would you help us to make a difference? A difference in the eternities of people in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.